Uh, church, I think the thing that we should be encouraged to hear about is, uh, I was looking at the bulletin, I think like last week's, we had like 3,000 bucks given to missions, uh, if I understood that correctly. Um, look at what that's doing, right? Like, look at the churches that are coming out of that. So, so you should be super highly encouraged by that. Uh, kiddos, you guys go on out. Saw your Gibbs. You get to go out with Michelle B, okay? Go on, buddy. All right, anybody else, little kiddos? Y'all go upstairs. You, if you don't want to have to hang out here with me for the next little bit, y'all go on, go on. Love it. All right, cool. Um, grab your Bibles, open to the book of Matthew. Open to the book of Matthew. I want to wish you, if I didn't see you during Christmas, Merry Christmas, a little late. Hope you got all you wanted. Happy New Year, if I hadn't seen you since then. Um, uh, I am glad this is kind of becoming a habit. I think last year I got to preach the first sermon of the year and I get to preach it again. So I, I'm, I'm excited to, to launch us into a new series today. Um, last year I started with the question and I will ask it again. Who in here's got some New Year's resolutions? Last year was really disappointing on the number of people that raised their hands and we saw how 2023 turned out. So who's got some New Year's resolutions? Maybe goals, anybody? Come on, raise them high, like raise it like you mean it, okay? Okay, yeah, there's some, I've, I've got some goals this year for 24. We've got some fitness goals on our end. Uh, I've got some reading goals, get through some books. Um, I, think, I think goals are a good thing. I think God has created people. He's created us to, to, to grow, to, uh, when I think back to Genesis, he placed Adam and Eve in the garden to steward and to keep, right? And I think that's what we're supposed to do. And I, goals help us make measurable steps forward. And so I think goals are a good thing. I've got some goals for liberty. Um, my goals for Liberty are not new. They're, they're what Liberty has been, and it's to grow in that. Uh, we exist for what reason? To glorify God by making disciples in Dalhart and around the world. That's what I want to do. My, my goal this year is that we would grow as disciples. I pray that we, and I hope that we, would become people who grow in prayer, who grow in love for one another. We love each other better. I pray that we would love those outside of this church uh, if we're making disciples, that means that we're seeing unsaved people be saved. And so I, I pray that we see unsaved people um, get saved here. I pray, uh, I have a goal that we see more people, more of you become plugged into the mission of what is going on here. And I'm excited because I think God is already doing that. He's, he's moving in some of your hearts and hopefully in all of your hearts. Um, this, this, again, this isn't new. This is who Liberty is. It's, it's who it has been for a long time. And hopefully it's who Liberty will be until Christ comes back. But, but some of the goals I have this year is that we would grow uh, in discipleship. Now, how many of you set goals, but also didn't make any steps to accomplish your goals? What is a goal without action steps? It's just empty. It's hollow, right? So, so we, we have goals. Our goals to grow as disciples. Well, how, what are our action steps? How do we accomplish this? Well, at Liberty, to, to grow in these things, what do we do? Well, we've got kids' zone on Wednesday nights for our kiddos, and, and we've got kids' Sunday school in the morning, and we've got students. You've got youth on Wednesday nights, adults. Uh, we, we, have, uh, we have small group. We have Sunday school in the morning. So, so all opportunities for you to connect and, and accomplish the goal of growing more into the image of Jesus this year. And the other thing we do is this. We open the Word of God, and we study it. And so this morning, what we're launching into is a series called Kingdom People. Now, when it comes to titling series and sermons, I don't like it. I don't enjoy coming up with them. I, I kind of think it's just like a necessary evil. But this is actually a really important uh, and intentional title. Um, and it's going to carry us through what is the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to do an overview. I've never preached a sermon like this before, so this is new for me, which 
Let that, let that uh, temper your expectation for today. Uh, and, and to do an overview, that means that we're not going to just zoom in on one passage, right? Normally we will open up, hey, next, starting next week, we'll look at the Beatitudes and we'll, we'll look at chapter five, verses one through 12, right? Uh, we're not gonna do that today. Um, today we're going to look at an overview of the whole Sermon on the Mount. Um, and it's gonna basically take a 50,000 foot view of the forest. And then next week we'll land and begin to walk through and look look at the trees individually. Now, anybody in here ever heard a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount? Yes, raise your hand. Go ahead, show them again. Sorry, just a little involved. It's always good. So, so I've heard some. Uh, when I was doing some research on this, how, how long should we make this sermon series? So Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a guy I'll quote a lot in this. He's a guy I respect a lot. He's, he's dead. He was a pastor during World War II. Um, he, he did a 63 sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> I'm not gonna do that, so good news. We're not gonna be here for the next year and a half. Uh, I, I'm thinking we're gonna be somewhere around 20 weeks. Uh, it won't just be me preaching, it'll be a lot of other guys preaching as well. Um, but that, that's kind of our trajectory is to walk through this. It'll take us as long as it takes us 20 minutes, or 20, 20 sermons, Masermeno is, is kind of what I'm thinking on it. But as I've, I have read these three chapters um, over the past 10 days, two weeks, uh, I'll just be honest with you. I'm a little bit nervous about this sermon series. Um, it is a little bit scary in some ways. Uh, I'm nervous because I think what God is going to do as we study these three chapters is he is going to allow us to see what it means to be a true disciple, what it means to really be kingdom people. Um, and as we see what he's called us to, what he see this, what, as we see uh, what it means to be a kingdom person, we're going to be deeply challenged. We're going to begin to see some of the sin in our own lives. And when you see sin, if you let sin sit, there's a problem. And if you see sin and you wrestle with sin, then you know it's not easy. And I think what God's going to call us to do as a church, as we walk into this, is to wrestle with some sin. Um, and that's, that's hard. And it can be scary at times because we like sin. It's comfortable. It's easy. Um, so as we walk through this, our goal for this year, our goal for the sermon series, uh, as we see the sin in our life, my hope is, is that on the back side of this, we can look backwards, we can remember, and we can say, man, look at what God did. Look how God set me free from this. Look at the, re the relationships that he reconciled and restored. Look, look at how I have grown in holiness and in a desire to be more like him. So to that end, what I wanna do is I wanna stop. I want to go another step, and I just want to spend some time in prayer. And I want you to ask God to help you. I want you to ask God that you would be committed to what he calls you to do as a kingdom person. And that you would, on the very front end, decide right now, you're going to be a part of this. And you're going to be committed to doing this and growing into the man or to the woman that God has created you to be. So I'm going to set my a timer for a minute. And I'm just going to let you sit with the Lord and ask him for your help. And then I'll conclude with a prayer and we'll jump into this overview, okay? So, so just pray and then I'll, I'll close this.
Lord Jesus, thank you for new mercies today to seek your face. Thank you for a chance to gather with your people and be reminded that you love us enough to place us here with one another so that through your spirit's power, we might sharpen one another and become more like Jesus. God, this morning we come together asking that you would help us be more like Christ. That's our goal, is to be shaped into the image of Jesus. Spirit of God, may we get to the end of this sermon series, may we get to the end of 24 and see that we have grown in sanctification. May we see that we are set free from sin. May we walk in the identity that you have given us as your people. God, grow in us a desire to be in your word. Grow in us a desire to be people who pray. God, grow in us a love for your church, for one another. Help us to be committed to loving and to serving and to gathering together. God, do this for our good because that's what you created us for. But God, do it mostly so we can catch a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. Lord, that's what we want is to see you, is to behold the glory of the Lord, to taste it and to sit with the good shepherd, the good teacher, and to learn and be shaped by you. Lord Jesus, do these things for our good and do them for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. Overview. I've got three questions that we are going to walk through to try and answer this. And again, we're not going to zoom in on any one text. This is a little bit of Bible drill. We're going to look at the first five, seven chapters of the book of Matthew. Okay. All seven. So be ready to flip back and forth a little bit. I will have some of them on the screen. Hopefully I won't leave Brandis in the dust too bad. Uh, Brandis, thank you. Um, first question we're going to seek to answer today is this. What is the Sermon on the Mount? Second question is, who is it for? And the third question is, what do we do with it? Okay, what is the Sermon on the Mount? Let's start there. I started doing homework on Sermon on the Mount. How are we gonna study this? We're gonna look at this. Did you know that there are at least 36 different approaches to the Sermon on the Mount? 36. What do we do with that? How do we decide what is the correct way to understand and interpret the Sermon on the Mount when there's that many different views? Well, I think it's worth taking a quick survey of six of them, okay? I picked six, the top six, and the reason I picked these six is because knowing you and some of your backgrounds, I think maybe some of this could be influenced in, in how you were raised and even how you've heard this, these three chapters preached. So just real quickly, I'm gonna run through these uh, on these different approaches, and then we'll step back and we'll come up with our approach, which is not ours, we're not, I'm not making this up, it's what a lot of church history has done. So, so here's the first one, okay? First view is the spiritual elite view. All right, spiritual elite view says this. It says that the Sermon on the Mount is for who? The spiritual elite, for the best of the best. It is for the apostles. It's for the pastors and the teachers and the missionaries and the super holy Christian people. That's who the Sermon on the Mount is for. And the rest of you, man, you can look at it and it's good for you to learn from, but you know, it's really not for you. It's for the spiritual elite. Now, there's problems with that view. Second view, I'm not gonna pick all these apart, I'm just gonna lay them out. Second view, there's the call to repentance view. Now this was the view that Martin Luther actually took. Luther said that Jesus' intent for this sermon was to reveal our spiritual impotency and drive us to repentance. 
So what that means is that when we study the Sermon on the Mount, we're gonna see all these character attributes. This ethic is a word I'm gonna use a lot. This ethic, and you're gonna, what, what Luther would say is, it's totally unattainable. You can't become this. And the reason Jesus gave it to his disciples was to show them that you can't become this and you need someone to save you, okay? So that is the call to repentance view, all right? Number two. Number three, there's the social gospel view. Now, this view says that the Sermon on the Mount is the roadmap towards social progress. It's the utopian ideal. This was actually one of the things that influenced Karl Marx, which became Marxism, which had an effect on communism, which led to Nazism, okay? So just to kind of give you a little bit of history there, this view said, hey, you know what? The world needs to live like this and the world becomes a better place when everybody lives according to the Sermon on the Mount. So Nazism begins to kind of flourish out of that. Not, not just the Sermon on the Mount, but that's some of the history behind that. Now, I've already told you all about Dr. Lloyd-Jones. He preached this super long sermon series on this at the beginning of World War II. And he argued that people weren't going to church to find the solution to their problems in that day and age because the church had become too much like the world. So up and comes along this new idea, communism, and everybody flocks to it because it seems to fix everybody's problems. So, so what Lloyd-Jones was saying is the problem with, with what communism is, is that they've taken the Sermon on the Mount and misinterpreted it, but the real problem is, is the church is not living this, and so people don't see the church as a solution. They don't see Jesus as the solution to all their problems. I wonder if his criticism of the church in 1939 still applies to us today. Do we live in such a way that is so strikingly different, in such a way that it attracts others to Christ? Now, be real clear here. Sermon on the Mount does not lead to communism. That is not it, okay? That's not, not where we're going. But I do think we're gonna see the call of the follower of Christ is markedly different than living a normal life with Jesus thrown in on Sunday mornings. So that's the social gospel view, all right? Number four, the millennial ethic view. Now, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped it. Went to the literal view. Sorry, there we go. The literal view, literal view. Literal view, you guys are gonna believe this. They take the Sermon on the Mount literally, all right? It's just literal. So, so when Jesus says, hey, if your eye causes you to sin, you know what you should do? Pop it out. Your hand, chop it off, right? If somebody slaps you on the right cheek, what do you do with the left cheek? Trying to give them that. Someone says, give me your cloak, I'll give them the tunic too, right? So they take the Sermon on the Mount extremely literally. Now, this view has led to full-fledged pacifism uh, among some major groups today. So um, there's, there's some things of this that are good, but overwhelmingly, I think it falls short. In contrast to that is the millennial ethic. Now, so literal view takes it literal. It's for everyone of all time. The millennial view argues that Jesus gave this Sermon on the Mount to who? The disciples, as we're gonna see here in a little bit, to, to the Jews around him. He said, if you guys will live like this, you can be in the kingdom. But what did they say to Jesus? Crucify him. No, we don't want it. So since they rejected it, then the Sermon on the Mount is what is gonna happen when Christ returns. So the millennial view, sometimes it's called the dispensational view, says that the Sermon on the Mount is not for this time frame; it's for whenever Christ returns, okay? Um, the last view, finally, there is the intensifying of the Old Testament law view. Believe it or not, this view sounds exactly like what it is too. Those who hold this view think that Jesus basically took the Old Testament law and he cranked it up to 10. So in other, way, in other words, for you to be righteous before God, you have to keep the Old Testament law and Sermon on the Mount. Good luck, 
all right? You must obey all of this in order to be justified before God. Now, again, the reason I want to mention these on the front is because I think that there are some presuppositions about what this sermon is and how we approach it and what we do with it based off of some of our backgrounds. And in almost all six of these perspectives, there are little nuggets of truth that are helpful, but I think in their entirety, they fall short of what God, what Jesus intended when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Great, that's good. Kind of got some background there for that info. If that's the case, what, what do we do and how do we understand what the Sermon on the Mount is? What view do we take? Well, being Bible people, uh, I want to look at the book and let the scriptures drive where we land. So when you come to a passage of the Bible, the first thing that you need to ask is, who is its author? Who's the author of this book? Matthew. Right? He's not, his signature's not on it anywhere, but church history has told us, uh, and, and it's most likely true, that Matthew was the one who authored the book of Matthew. And why did, or who, who did Matthew write this book to? Well, if you look across Matthew, it becomes clear that he wrote it to a Judeus, Ju, Jewish audience in order to show them who Jesus was. So we know Matthew's the author. We know he's written it to a bunch of Jews to prove who Jesus was. The second thing we need to know is, what are some of the main problems that he was seeking to address? Well, there are several themes that pop up in this book that help you know exactly what Matthew is targeting. And that's what I want us to, I want us to spend some time studying, okay? What were the themes that, that occur in this book that are important for us to understand? We'll start with Matthew chapter two, okay? Matthew chapter two, and we're really, I'm gonna jump from two to three to four, then back to one and five, and so we're gonna be, we're gonna be jumping all around in these first seven verses, okay? Or first seven chapters. Matthew chapter two, I'm gonna read verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, for just a second, I want you to step back and I want you to try and put yourself in the shoes of a Jew who would have been alive, who would have been Matthew's original audience. And all of a sudden you hear the story of a baby who's been born and the evil pagan king has just commanded to try and kill that boy to kill all the rest of the baby boys. Does that recall in your mind maybe any other Bible heroes that would have been a big deal to you? Moses. It calls to mind Moses. That's exactly right. Now, the parallels between Moses and Jesus become even more evident. All right, look down to verse 20 of chapter 2. In verse 2, chapter 20, it, said, um, it says this, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Matthew 2, 20, that latter part, verse B, those seeking the life of the child are dead, is a clear and direct quotation of the Greek version of Exodus chapter 4, verse 19, which says, and the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So you see again, Jesus and Moses, this typology, this parallel, Matthew is bringing this to the front of, of his readers' minds. He's wanting them to go, hang on a minute, something between Jesus and Moses is going on. Now, why would Jesus do that? Why, why, would, why would Matthew do that? Well, we see in the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth, and then after Jesus is born, where does he go? He goes to Egypt, and then all of a sudden, after all these children are killed, he comes back out of Egypt, 
just like Moses, right? What's he, what's he doing? What is Matthew doing? He's saying, hey, there is somebody like Moses that has been born. Now, here's another way we see Jesus be a little bit like Moses. Matthew chapter five, verse one. Let's look at the very first verse of the Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. Now, remember, Moses delivers Israel out of Egypt and then they go to where? They go to Sinai. And Moses goes up on Sinai and he receives the word of God and then he comes back down and he gives it to the Israelites. But what does Jesus do? Jesus goes up the mountain and he sits down to give the word of God. So, so what, what Matthew's showing is there's not somebody that's like Moses, there's somebody a lot greater than Moses. What this really is, is this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the, the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they're right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. It doesn't stop there. Jesus isn't just a prophet like Moses. You see, Jews saw Moses as more than a prophet. They saw Moses as a redeemer and as a deliverer right? That's what he did. He would redeem Israel out of the hands of Pharaoh and into the promised land. Flip back to Matthew chapter one real quick. Chapter one, verse 21. Told you, Bible drill today. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Yeshua. Can also be translated as Joshua. Who was Joshua? He delivered the people into the promised land. And the root of Joshua is the same as the word of Moshe, Moses, who is a deliverer. So there's something even in the name of Jesus that triggers the idea of a deliverer. And it's not just that, for he will what? Save. He will redeem his people from an evil king, from their sins. Like Moses, Jesus was a redeemer but he redeemed all people from something made much greater than the Egyptian king. Jesus came to redeem people from their sins. And when Moses delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, he took them to Mount Sinai where the covenant was reinstituted, right? Later on in the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, the Lord promised his people that he would make a new covenant to them. Now, Matthew recalls Jeremiah and the new covenant. Look with me to chapter two, verse 18. Uh, we'll back up to 17. This will fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, if you're an ancient Jew and you hear that, that passage quoted, you begin immediately to think of what follows behind it. What follows behind Jeremiah 31, 15? Well, it's it's the next verses are of Israel's return from exile. It's of the repentance and the restoration of Israel. And finally, it's Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, 
my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You see, what Matthew was alluding to in the person of Jesus at the very beginning of his book was that the one had come to deliver, to redeem, to teach, and to establish a new covenant that now existed in people's hearts. What Jesus was doing was ultimately ushering in a new kingdom. That's why John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 verse 2 would say this, repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The next page for me. Matthew chapter four, verse 17. Jesus begins his ministry. And when Jesus begins to preach, what does he say? Repent, for why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verse 23, Jesus goes throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. What Matthew was showing his original audience And what he was showing us was that Jesus came to be the deliverer who would redeem his people and teach them his ways by establishing a new covenant with them in which he was the king over their hearts. What he was bringing about wasn't an external law to be obeyed. Instead, it was an internal change to be lived. In fact, when you look at the Sermon of the Mount, do you know what the unifying theme of it is? It's the kingdom. Look with me to the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter five, verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jump down to verse 10. Blessed are those who, per, who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That brackets, it bookends the kingdom, that bookends the Beatitudes. Do you think it's important? Flip the page, if you're like me. Look to me with verse 19 of, of chapter five. Now, verses 17 through 20 are going to be incredibly important understanding the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll, we'll get there in a couple weeks. But verse 19, therefore, whoever lacks is one of the, the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's chapter five. That's the front end of the Sermon on the Mount. Flip over to chapter seven. Chapter seven. Let's see, I thought I had them all underlined. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what do you find? The kingdom of heaven. It brackets it, it bookends it, but it's not just on the ends of it, it's also in the middle of it, okay? So uh, it's at the heart of the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter six, verse 10. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. It's the climax of the Lord's Prayer. Then uh, again, in uh, chapter six, verse 33, it's the climax of the section on the kingdom perspectives. And finally, as we just looked, it is what one must enter into in chapter seven. So 
all of this information about who Jesus is and what Matthew's making him to be. And then we come to this kingdom idea that is existing in Matthew chapters five through seven on the Sermon on the Mount. What does it mean for how we were to understand the purpose of what this is? I wanna ask one more question. When Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what did he mean? Did he mean that the kingdom was there? Could we say that anywhere Jesus was, the kingdom existed? I think we could. If he is the one who came to redeem people from the kingdom of darkness and place them into the kingdom of marvelous light, isn't he the king? Isn't he the one who can deliver you out of death and into life? He is the one who can continue to teach his people his ways because when he's their king, do you know what he gives? A new heart with new desires. If that's the case, then the purpose then of the Sermon on the Mount was to show those who would follow him what life in the kingdom under the rule of the king was like. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It is to teach those who are gonna follow Jesus what life in the kingdom under the rule of the king is like. And if that's what it is, then the next question we ask is, well, who's it for? If our definition is those who would follow him, who are those that would follow him? Well, clearly, Matthew chapter five, verse one, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So Jesus is clearly wanting to pull his disciples away from the crowd for just a minute so he can teach them something very specific about what it means to follow him. This is for them, at least most of them. We know that one of his disciples doesn't continue to follow him. But as we just established, wherever Jesus is, his kingdom exists. So where is Jesus now? Well, Ephesians tells us he's seated at the right hand of the Father, right? But what does Paul say in Galatians chapter two, verse 20? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So this leads to the question, does the king live in you? Does Christ rule over you? And if he does, do you know what that means? The kingdom has come. The kingdom has come in you and among you. This means that the Sermon on the Mount is for you. It, it's a sermon to show you, like the disciples, how to be kingdom people, which is why we're calling the series Kingdom People. Now, that's good and great if you're a follower of Jesus. But if Christ isn't Lord of your life, what do you do with the Sermon on the Mount? If Christ is not the king of your heart, I'm really grateful you're here. That's good. But the Sermon on the Mount is not for you. In fact, church, it is not helpful for us to impose or expect those outside of the kingdom to live according to kingdom ethic. Last week, I got to go with my family to Disney World. Actually, a week ago today, we were in the Magic Kingdom of all places with like a million other people. It was great. We had a good time. Now, to get into Magic Kingdom, you have to buy a day pass. And when you buy your day pass, do you know what you can do? You can go in the kingdom and you can ride all the rides if you stand in line for two and a half hours. It's marvelous. 
Wonderful, magical. <laughs> Disney's smart, though. If you wake up at 5 a.m., you can buy the Genie Plus app. You wake up early at 5, you get your Genie Plus app. Then at 7, you have an opportunity to reserve two spots on two rides in the Lightning Lane. Now, what is the Lightning Lane? It is the fastest way to heaven. No, that's not right. It's not right. The Lightning Lane is where you get to walk by all these people and go, man, you peasants. I'm cutting right up to the front of the line. You can, but you only get two, two rides. Okay, you only get two rides. So, so we would wake up at seven o'clock. We would have all of the rides picked out. Which one's the most important? Which ones do we want to get? And, and like, you got to realize everybody else that's on Disney, which is a million other people, are doing the same thing at the same time. So you got to be on top of your game, right? Oh, man. We stood in line last Sunday for two and a half hours for, I don't remember what that ride was. Uh, it was the Seven Dwarves ride, wasn't it? Yeah, two and a half hours for set, six minutes. Six minute ride. It's a great ride. Six minutes. The Lightning Lane is where it's at. Now, question. Would it make any sense for you tomorrow morning to wake up at 5 a.m. to purchase the Genie Plus? And then at 7, which would be 6 our time, be ready to reserve two spots on the Lightning Lane? Well, no, you're not going to Disney tomorrow. That, that would be absurd, right? Look, when we force kingdom ethic on those outside of the kingdom, it's just as absurd. By doing that, what we're actually doing is we're trying to create some sort of self-earned righteousness that doesn't push anybody up in the lightning lane, right? That's not how righteousness is earned. It doesn't get you any closer to the front of the line or make you any better before God. No, as a matter of fact, God was kind in that he gave us a guy who did all the things, right? Who followed all the rules, who was the best of the best. Paul, Philippians chapter three. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, man, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, how was he? Blameless. Man, if anybody could obey God and do all the right things, it was Paul. His own proclamation is that he was blameless. What does the next verse say? Verse seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. See, what Paul realized was that the righteousness of, the king, of kingdom people doesn't come from their own works. Instead, as he says two verses later in verse nine, and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So here's the thing. If Christ is already Lord of your life, do you know what you already have? Righteousness. Obeying the Sermon on the Mount, living out these kingdom ethics does not make you more righteous before God. Now, what do we do? Functionally, we grow into it. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount shows us. It shows us the characteristics to be embodied that go with the righteousness that has already been given to us in Christ. Now, since Christ reigns now, his, his reign isn't just coming, his reign is existing now. Do you know what this means? This means that the sermon is to be applied now. It's something he meant for his followers to learn, to teach, and to live until he returns. It's not something that's unattainable, otherwise he wouldn't have given it. And it's not something that's absurd, like actually poking out your eyeball or chopping off your hand, right? Did Jesus do anything that was just absurd? 
Had he called any of his followers to do anything that was just absurd or ridiculous? No, that's against the character of who Jesus is. So when we come to these passages that are difficult and that cause us to wrestle with things, we can know that based off of the character of Jesus and the rest of the New Testament, that if our interpretation is absurd and crazy, it's probably wrong. So that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's for kingdom people. So what do we do with it? I told you at the beginning, the Sermon on the Mount is scary. Matthew chapter seven, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The one who says, Lord, Lord, not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. You see, what Jesus does at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is he gives two different options. There's a good tree and a bad tree, good fruit and bad fruit. There's a wide gate and a narrow gate, a wide path and a narrow path. There's two different types of people in this room. There are some who say, Lord, Lord, but he's not really their Lord. That's the group of people that Jesus later on calls whitewashed tombs. Everything looks really good on the outside. Man, their life is put together. They're married. They have good kids. They go to church. They tithe. They know the Bible. But really on the inside, do you know what they're full of? Dead bones. At the end of the day, their prayer isn't thy kingdom come, but my kingdom come. They tip their hat to Jesus, but they live their lives for themselves. So the question is, is is this you? Have you really submitted to the lordship of Jesus? When I do baptism interviews with kids or adults, one of the questions that I always ask is, are you willing to go wherever he calls you to go? And are you willing to do anything he asks you to do? I heard a guy say once that it's like your life is a blank check and you have just signed your name on the bottom and you said, Lord, let your kingdom come. Cash it however you want to. If Christ called you today to uproot your family and give up your generational family business and go and do this, is your answer already yes? Have you already said, Lord, I'm yours. My life is yours. My finances are yours. My family is yours. I'm yours. If not, is Jesus king? If Christ is not Lord, then the call for you today before we ever look at any of the Sermon on the Mount is to confess your sin. It's to confess your inability to walk in righteousness before a holy God. And then it's to ask him, the savior, the redeemer, the teacher, the shepherd, to save you and to redeem you. And you know what? He will. He loves to bring death to life. It shows who he is. If Christ is not Lord, will you respond today in obedience and submission to him? Now for those of you who have submitted to Christ, for those of you who you say, yes, Jesus is my Lord and whatever he calls me to do, I'll do. And wherever he calls me to go, I'll go. What is the call for you when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount? I've got three things that I want to challenge you with. 
The first is, is through the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace that has been given us in Jesus, we're gonna seek to obey the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't give his followers something that was absurd. He gave us something to be lived. So we're gonna seek to obey it. And we're gonna walk forward with the expectation that because Christ is king in us and we have the spirit of God with us, that we actually can begin to embody these things that he calls us to. So we're gonna obey it and we're gonna expect him to change us. Why do we do this? We do this because Christ died for us to live it. He died to send us the spirit, the helper, the counselor, the teacher that will enable us to begin to look more like Jesus. And church, do you know what happens when we live like kingdom people? People don't flock to Nazism. They don't flock to whatever the teaching of the day is. You know what they see? They see, that's what I was created for. They wanna live according to what God has created them to be. What the world needs in 1923, as Lloyd-Jones says, was true Christians, 1933. What the world needs today, what Dalhart needs today, is real, authentic followers of the king. So what are your goals for 2024? May our overarching, may the main big thing for us be to live like kingdom people. May we begin to embody the character traits that Christ is going to call us to in the sermon the final thing on the real practical side that I wanna challenge you to is this. Over the next seven days, I wanna challenge you to read those three chapters, Matthew five through seven. In one sitting, it takes about 11 minutes. Read the Sermon on the Mount, starting today till next Sunday. And to get bonus points, a star on your chart, sit down with a, with a pen and a journal. And as you read it, ask the Spirit of God to help form you as you wrestle with your own anger or lust or retaliation or hatred or generosity or selfishness or prayer or anxiety or judgment or any of the other things we're gonna come across in this. He wants to shape you. He wants to make you look more like him. That's the mission he's on. Will you submit to it? Will you begin to live in the identity that he has given you as kingdom people? Let's pray. Father, Help us. Thank you for giving us the Sermon on the Mount to see what it's like to live as your people on your planet under your rule. Jesus, may we do that. May we at liberty submit our lives to Jesus. May we see the radical calling of the Sermon on the Mount and say, yes, Lord, do as you will. May we be willing to wrestle with the sin and with the hard things in our life, with the brokenness that's there. And God, may we see you and your spirit heal. Bring reconciliation, bring restoration between one another and most importantly, between you. God, I pray as we spend the next months on this, that we would see people go from death to life. God, may we be intentional in pursuing after others just as you have pursued after us in leaving heaven and coming to earth and taking on the form of a servant. God, may we be like you in that. O King, reign in our hearts. God, do this to glorify the name of Jesus for the good of our church, for the good of our community, for our good, for one another's good. God, but mostly for your glory. 
God, we love you and we thank you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.